All right. Well, good morning. As we get started, let us pray as we get into the word. Lord, let the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, that this word is your truth, that it concerns us, that is matters of your glorious creation. It gives us an idea of who you are, that while your majesty will never be fully known, let us not forget to try to have this relationship with you as we pursue you to get to know you and allow us to be reminded as passages such as these that you are far supreme of anything of this world, any matters of evil, you are victorious. Let us be reminded this morning that this is your word. Let your spirit inspire and illumine to us your wishes and your desire for us to hear this morning. And so we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. And so as you heard, we're going through Colossians 1, 13 through 20. So it's divided somewhat into three different parts. If you have some English translations, have 13 and 14 in a separate section, and then a new heading for the hymn that is 15 through 20. And so that ranges from 15 to 17 and then also 18 through 20. And we'll break it down a bit more as we go. But as we look at this passage, let us be reminded, first and foremost, of the supremacy of Christ. Because far too often, we look upon our own human achievement or our own effort or merit to garner some substance of goodness just like the space race. If you recall, there was a prominent message given by a popular president. He says, we chose to go to the moon in this decade and to do several other things, not because they're easy, but because they are hard, because the goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills, because that challenge is one that we are willing to accept one we are unwilling to postpone, and one which we intend to win, and the others too. I'm guessing you don't have to be a history buff to realize this is the words of President John F. Kennedy back in September 12, 1962. It was his response to the USSR. And such an address approved to inspire hope for a nation as they were plodding through civil strife and on the edge of the Cold War, as tensions were risen. And while he was not able to see the efforts that he caused, the United States was able to get that man on the moon. As of July 20th, 1969, Apollo 11 was successful in landing on the moon which led to the spacewalks of Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, and perhaps we forget that third other guy. Never mind that the USSR had already launched a satellite, sent a man to space, and a woman to space before this, but that's the American way. We did it better. So historically speaking, this has become the crowning achievement in the space race. And although the 20th century saw the universe as something to be explored, those living in the first century, in the time of our apostles' correspondence with the church at Colossae, would have thought about it a lot differently. 
In their minds, the universe was ruled by a plethora of gods. Space was not something to be conquered, or else you run right into them. It's reigned supreme over all of mankind's dealings. And interestingly enough, within this plurality of Greek mythology and other tribal deities, not even the most powerful intermediary, Zeus, was considered to be powerful, all-powerful or all-knowing or flawless. However, this true God had these important traits. He was the true powerful deity, and perhaps we'll even consider him supreme. So as we expect and kind of foresaw, these two eras have vastly different perspectives on what it means to explore the universe, to have crowning achievement, because they both share one major parallel. They look to themselves. While one was made from the corruption of spiritual matters and the other from the emphasis of its own rights of humanism, mankind easily forgets and overlooks that the cosmos is not ruled by any man or any assortment of pointless gods. Landing on the moon is one thing, but creating that moon out of nothing is another. And we all bear witness to this in the supremacy of Christ, and especially as the Lord is the head of the church. So however, before we shift into our hymn of 15 through 20, we start with verses 13 and 14. As our first point of emphasis this morning, we must look into how the kingdoms are transferred. So what does this all mean? To be delivered from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. Like Israel, who had been ravaged and oppressed by the clutches of Pharaoh, God has promised through his covenants to deliver his people from Satan and the powers of darkness. Perhaps we may be reminded of the promises made to Abraham in Exodus 6.6. It says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Having now come to fruition with the power of the cross, the judgment lies in the hands of the Son. And as verse 14 reminds us, it is solely in the blood of Jesus Christ that we might find our redemption. By him alone are we able to find forgiveness of our sins and nothing else. This assurance can be found in another place in Paul's letters, as he writes in Romans 5.18, the transfer from Adam to Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification for life of all men. This is good news. This is the good news. It is indeed that Christ has bought us with his blood. But hold on. Even if we wholeheartedly echo this doctrinal truth in our mind, our hearts are prone to wander. Like sheep led astray by our own folly, and further we wander from our shepherd. When we leave this room, do we lead a life that is conscious of what kingdom we are citizens of? Are we so easily pulled back to the kingdom of darkness, even though we've been transferred to the kingdom of God? Perhaps we can summarize this with a famous C.S. Lewis quote, because what good Reformed Protestant preaching doesn't have C.S. Lewis in it? As we pull it from the screw tape letters, 
Lewis gives us a clever critique of the work of demons by illustrating the advice given by a seasoned demon to another. The seasoned demon says, It is funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. So we must ask ourselves, what is being kept from us? What blind spots are we not aware of? Perhaps it's the fact that we move too fast in this life to reflect on the matters of our heart. We don't sit in silence to listen to the Lord's call. Because a life full of many distractions is one of immeasurable temptations. With the most egregious being that we don't actively pursue the kingdom of God. Instead, we exchange our joy for treat thrills and hopeless vanities. Surely it is far more important that we climb that corporate ladder. Although we might forsake our faith in the process. There is no harm in gossiping with the neighbors about the couple across the street that can't seem to stop fighting. Why can't I find my purpose in the American dream? I can create my own kingdom. But trouble is, that's not the true kingdom. The kingdom of God. So why then do we consume the scraps that fall for the dogs when the king is calling us to a seat at the royal table? And so just like the church at Colossae, have we forgotten who Jesus truly is? May we be reminded of why the Father has afforded so much to his Son, Jesus Christ. So Paul uses this traditional hymn to remind the Colossians of the supremacy of Christ, to show them that their kingdom has been transferred and no longer they live in darkness, that Jesus is not merely another God, infallible and corrupt. He's not part of some soap opera. He is the risen Christ. But this is said about him, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a gift. And so with the remainder of our text this morning, we'll speak to this as the hymn can be broken into the two logical categories, as the Lord of creation in 15 through 17, and as the head of the church in 18 through 20. And so first, we partake on the Lord of creation. It is made clear right off the bat that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, not a moral cre mortal creation of the likes of Zeus from human imagination or any made about like any other supreme deity in the Council of Athens. He is the actual incarnation of the invisible God, the image of God intended, God intended man to be an image that extends well beyond the image that we could have ever drawn up for ourselves. And as part of the Holy Godhead, Jesus has extended ruling sovereignty from the Father. Not one who was created, but the one who always was, the great I Am. Many scholars have drawn noticeable comparisons of verse 16 to the likes of teaching of Hillel, who was who taught Paul's famous rabbi, rabbi Gamaliel. He taught that this passage was reminiscent of Genesis 1-1 in its use of beginning, that the in, by, and for evoke the same meaning of beginning, 
that before all, Christ was and always has been, that furthermore, you have heard that unlike most stories, the trajectory of Scripture is to the middle, to Christ, to the cross. He is the promised Messiah and the fulfillment of Psalm 89.27. As predicted, he became the highest of the kings of the earth. A supremacy that finds no worth in trivial matters of man. For what does Jesus care if humans render to Caesar what is Caesar's? As the heretical opinion of that day, Caesar is not God. He is not the second person of the Trinity. The rulers and authorities of that world and ours are temporal. Jesus is truly eternal. So we give to God what is God's, which is love. Love your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and you will receive a great inheritance that you truly do not deserve. So may we not be like Israel that clamored for a king, just like the nations around them rejecting God from being that king. So while our disobedience may not be as subtle, the church must realize that we are no better. But we have been given the witness of, cross, of Christ on the cross, bearing the weight of the law, fulfilling it on our behalf. We have already seen that the redemption is found in Christ, as said in verse 14. So we are reminded that he alone is capable of forgiving our sins, not the good deeds that we may take for granted, not the ethics that we tend to hang our hats on, and not even the rock-solid constitution that we have to keep the law of God for ourselves. All will fail, but Christ will not. And so moreover, Paul's use of the Greek word, synestekin, which means to hold together in verse 17, would be best understood as a sense of being already established, a continuity of existence, that everything is sustained in Christ because he is self-sustaining. No empire, no nation, no business, no creature, no nothing can make such a claim. And perhaps parents all around the country need to bear witness to this truth, because surely they didn't actually bring us into this world, but that doesn't mean they won't try to take us out. But please don't tell my mother. Because although his resume is already stuffed full, we have yet to touch upon our next point, another addition that Jesus is supreme because he is also the head of the church. The church as a body with Christ is proven to be a popular metaphor for the apostle and one that helps us to understand. And not only is Christ the head as in leadership, he is also the lifeblood of the body. He is their origin. Through his resurrection, Christ is the proclamation of new life for the church. Summarized by Jesus himself in his gospel account in John, he states this, Because I live, you also live. He gives us life. It is in this new life, this rebirth, that the church is given its purpose as an extension of Christ on earth until his return. N.T. Wright is spot on as he says this about the importance of Christ's resurrection and the purpose of the church. Paul believed that God brought forward the inauguration of the age to come, the age of resurrection, into the midst of this present age, 
in order that the power of the new age might be unleashed upon the world while there was still time for the world to be saved. And as you can see, there is great purpose in the kingdom. All else pales in comparison. But let us be clear. It is not Christ that he does not want us to enjoy the splendor of his creation. It is actually the opposite. And perhaps pulling from a famous quote from a famous pastor that preached just in this very spot a few weeks ago, that God enjoys it when we enjoy his creation. Those are wise words, Isaac. Very wise. He has bestowed many blessings in his common grace, but yet the church gets to enjoy his greatest gift, saving grace. What wondrous love it is to have a head that gives life, who doesn't take for himself, but gives freely to his people. And although the cross was intended for mockery, it was actually the means of glory to reconcile the rebellious and defeat death for all of creation. And how beautiful are these words are this text. We get to see to be transferred to a kingdom of riches and partakers in the gospel of which angels long to look. Even though it would be enough on its own to prove his supremacy, Christ is not only the Lord of the universe, but he is also head of the church as we have seen. He alone is whom we should be desperately clinging to. He is the most high God and we are his servants. And as if we needed another reason to downplay our own ability, our own human nature, in comparison to the resurrected Christ, we can look again to the space race and we'll be reminded of our limitations and shortcomings. Because consider the words of the author of the nonfiction book, Hidden Figures, Margaret Lee Shetterly. And she says this, As fantastical as America's space ambitions might have seemed, sending a man into space was starting to feel a lot more straightforward than compared to putting black kids and white students together in the same Virginia classrooms. So you see, there are many matters of the kingdom that do not change. It's the same story, just a new generation. While there are more problems to point to than those of race, it is one of the most prevalent in our nation at this time. And perhaps the consequential racial tensions are things we can deal with in our little corner of the world. And granted, America's not alone in acts of racism, and perhaps not as barbaric as some, but what does that mean for us? Can we embody the kingdom of light in our little corner of this world? What would happen if we were to make this a priority? Not just as an as a organization, as a church, as a body, but as individuals. What could we do? What are we being called to do if it's not of race? Where is God calling you to bring this kingdom of light into? Because seriously, if we look, just for example, at our race subject, why is it that we can put a man on the moon, but we can't put an end to the horrors of racism? Because we recite passages such as Galatians 3.28, that says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, for you are all one in Christ. That means all. But clearly, as we look around, it is obvious that such a passage is more say than do. 
especially as a Sunday morning service, especially known as the most segregated hour in America. Albeit, inroads have been made in recent memory to try to correct this, but many multicultural churches in the states survive by means of assimilation rather than the celebration of diversity. However, as New Covenant community under the authority of Christ, we have been called to engage social structures and institutions that create war, poverty, and injustice. We are called to be peacemakers amongst times of chaos, a non-anxious presence in the face of opposition, and to help proclaim the gospel to reconcile the lost from their bondage to sin and death. So what would happen if the church took a stand against the current injustices and immense hatred facing those of Asian descent today? Or during the Iraqi war of the early thousands of hate towards those in Middle Eastern descent, or even of the issues that we see of African American descent? For one, we must come to realize that everyone bears the image of God, even if we don't want to invite them to our summer barbecues, or why do we make assumptions of people based on their skin color? And secondly, there is no greater unifying force in the universe than that, than the love of Christ. Where else will you find such an assortment of people working together for people they hardly know or strangers? We give generous, we are generous with our time, money, and talents. We're called to clothe the poor, comfort the orphan and the widow, feed the hungry, and the list goes on and on. And we do this by the love of Christ. And certainly these are not the only matters of race to invest the church in and to be a part of, because that would be an oversimplification. The love of God can cover a multitude of sins. Because if we don't, the gospel will live and die with us. So we must ask ourselves as we leave this building with this word in mind, with our passage in mind, what are we going to do next? What does the supremacy of Christ mean to your life? As as the famous Christian philosopher James K.A. Smith says it this way, it's a very harrowing statement if we think about it. As he reflects, you are what you love, but you might not actually love what you think you love. To reflect on what you love to do, look to what has become habitual. What is your routine? Because you will, you will love to do what you want to do. So otherwise, is your say matching your do? As you reflect on passages in scripture, is your habit to love the kingdom of God? Is your daily attitude to serving Christ and do we do that daily, constantly? Me neither. But what if we made that effort? What if we pushed forward? And how remarkable our witness would be if we counted all things useless compared to the love of Christ, the service of the kingdom of God. This could mean that the world could be transformed, not fully until Christ returns, but we can truly resemble the body of Christ because this power of darkness being held over them, it is in desperate need to find their true king, desperately and immediately. So, do you love the kingdom of God or do you love the kingdom of self? Let's pray for the former. Let us pray. Lord, 
We know we have fallen short, that there are issues of our hearts where we don't find you as supreme. Lord, let us lift you up as a king, as the ruler of our kingdom that you have brought us into, that your blood, the cost is too high to relent. Allow us to pursue and keep diving into you and let this be the state of our hearts moving forward. And so we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.